I want to thank uh, Pete and the chapel gang for the opportunity to uh, speak today and for not assigning me a topic. Um, normally, because I teach politics, when they ask me to speak in chapel, they ask me to speak about politics, and cer certainly I'm comfortable in doing that, and in fact, a lot more comfortable in doing that than what I'm going to do today. Uh, but uh, there's good and bad about that. But then I was trying to figure out what was the theme for this week? Because you start with Austin Duncan, and you end with John MacArthur, and in between is me. So I decided the theme for the week must be peaks and valleys. <laughs> and that, you know, it's often said that you can't really understand how high a mountain is unless you look from down in the valley. So you can appreciate Monday and Friday after today. Um, the reason that I'm uncomfortable somewhat speaking today, some of my uh, illustrious students are sitting down here up front, they lost a bet, um, and they asked me if I was nervous today, uh, and you know, normally when I speak, I'm not nervous at all, and normally when I speak, uh, you know, it's, it's a fun thing, I enjoy doing it, and if you don't, then you shouldn't be a college professor. Um, but today I'm actually nervous, and I told him why, and the reason is because today I'm going to be transparent. I'm going to, uh, along with preaching to you, I'm going to be preaching about me, and that's always difficult. Um, you know, this message, when I started preparing it, it's, it was entirely different. I started preparing it as sort of an academic exercise. One of the things that's always intrigued me and bothered me in the Bible is the people who see amazing things like Pharaoh and the children of Israel they see these incredible miracles and so or Charlton Heston for that matter uh, they see these amazing incredible incredible miracles and they don't believe and so I, I started out it as with a sort of um, academic condemnatory plan to just sort of rip on a bunch of people in the Bible which, you know, that can be fun. But it turned into something entirely different. It turned into something introspective and self-convicting, which you might be able to gain, glean from the title of my message. Pharaoh, Pharisee, and Fraser. Because unfortunately, more often than not, I fit in that category. You know, the Bible tells us in John 3.19, right after John 3.16, which everybody knows, the Bible tells us in John 3.19 that as humans, we love the darkness. We love the darkness. You know, I deal with a lot of um, atheists in my academic work, and, you know, they, they try to tell me and explain why they don't believe, and I try to tell them the reason you don't believe is because you love the darkness. That goes over well. Um, it's because you love your sin. You love your sin. And that's why you don't believe. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.10, 10 through 12, that as humans, none of us is righteous or seeks God. We all have turned aside. I don't remember what I put slides for, so I'll have to look periodically. Um, but I, 
I did a PowerPoint because we're going to go cover a couple thousand years, and we're going to cover Exodus to Philippians. And so uh, it, it'll be a little hard for everybody to follow along, and we're not even going to look at all of the verses. I'm going to ask you to trust me or write them down from the screen and look them up later to see if I rightly divide the word of truth. Um, but when people love the darkness, humans love the darkness, we're not righteous, we don't seek God, but surely if we see something miraculous and amazing, then we'll believe right? Well, maybe not. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 16, 31. Let's get the pause here, sorry. Um, remember what Jesus said in Luke 16, 31. He said, even if they see someone rise from the dead, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, even if they see someone rise from the dead, they will not believe. And then, to prove them right, he rose from the dead and they didn't believe. Have you ever thought in your heart that Luke 16.31 doesn't apply to you? I have. There's something about the human heart. We're pretty stubborn. And even those of us who know Christ, think of it in a different sense. Not in the sense of not believing, but in the sense of not really believing to the extent that it makes a difference in your life. We're pretty stubborn. Even those of us who know Christ, we fail. And that's what I want to look at today. Um, and hopefully challenge you as I challenge myself. But let's... First, let's look at some people who saw amazing things but rejected God. If you want to, in the beginning at least, we're going to look at the verses, uh, actually look at the verses. If you turn with me to Exodus 7, and you're all familiar with Exodus 7. This is where the beginning of the miracles that God brings, the plagues, or if it's Dr. Varner, the plagues, um, the plagues that God brings on Egypt in order to get Pharaoh to let his people go. And so the first one, in the beginning, before the plagues even begin, we have Aaron's staff, right? And, and Aaron throws his staff down and it becomes a snake. And then uh, the magicians of Egypt match it and they throw their staffs down and they become... But Aaron's staff then eats the other staffs, so to speak. And look what verse 13 says. Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them. That begins a theme. Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them. Uh, then we, Moses turns the Nile to blood. And what's the reaction of Pharaoh? Look at verse 23. Then Pharaoh turned and went into his house with no concern for this. Eh, turn the Nile to blood. Eh, no concern. Then we go to chapter 8, and you got the frogs. And you think this might make Pharaoh hop to it. But no. His response, verse 8, he tries to make a deal. He makes a promise. Okay, he makes a promise. And then verses 8 to 15, at the end of it, look at verse 15. 
But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, once the frogs were gone, once uh, God removed the frogs, that's the key element. Look at verse 15. When Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not listen to them. Next, next comes the gnats, okay, which really bugged him. Look at verse 19. When the gnats have gone away, then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. The magicians are starting to get it, <laughs> right? They're starting to get Hey, this is not normal. This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them. Then we got, got more insects, verses 28 to 32. And again, makes a promise. Oh, yeah, yeah, just get rid of the insects. I'll let the people go. And then verse 32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. Then in chapter 9, the cattle are killed off. Okay? And look at verse 7. The heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. That's followed by the boils. The boils. Really pleasant. Verse 12, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them. Then there's hail, hail of fire that comes down at the end of chapter 9, verses 27 to 35. And then here, very, something very interesting. Look at verse 27 of chapter 9. Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. <laughs> okay, thanks for the clarification. I have sinned this time. The Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are the wicked ones. Please ask the Lord to, let, to, to relent. And so Moses does, and when the hail stops, verse 34, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart. Then the locusts, Chapter 10, verses 8 to 20. Once again, he, he starts into deal-making. I'll make a deal with you if you'll just get rid of the locusts. And in, again, in verses uh, 16 and 17, he says, I have sinned, because it worked last time. I have sinned, so please. And then, once the locusts are gone, then it's no deal. It's like that show that was on, you know, a couple years ago, Deal or No Deal. Pharaoh wants to play both sides. He wants to make a deal and then say, oh, no, no deal. Then we got the darkness, the end of chapter 10. And again, he tries to make a deal, verses 24 through 27. Tries to make a deal to get rid of the darkness. And then when it does, then it's no deal. So what finally grabs Pharaoh's attention what finally gets him to pay attention to what's going on is, of course, the death of his eldest son. Exodus 14, verses 5 to 8. And then look what happens. Finally, he changed his mind. He, or finally, he lets him go after the death of his son. But then what does he do? He changed his mind. In verses 5 to 8, he changed his mind and then he went after them to get him back. 
So here's a guy who's pretty hard-hearted and pretty stubborn, and he sees some amazing things, some phenomenal things, and it doesn't really make that big of an impression. And even when his eldest son is killed, okay, it bothers him for a day or so, and then he changes his mind and says, nah, I think I'll go after him. And this is all pretty outrageous. Um, and it'd be worse if it, if it wasn't that I'm in the same camp. You know, I started out thinking, I'm a, this Pharaoh guy, there's no excuse for this guy. And then I started thinking, wait a minute, I'm a lot like him. How many displays of God does it take to get my attention? Do I listen to him? The Bible says over and over again, Pharaoh did not listen. What does it take to get me to listen? Sure, I'm not rejecting God. I believe in Christ. I'm saved. But is that all there is to it? What about obeying? What about showing belief and love for Christ through what I do? Pharaoh made promises. How often do I make promises to God? How often do you make promises? God. God, if you'll just get me through this, then fill in the blank. How often do I then revert to sin after the crisis passes? What about like Pharaoh? Do I make deals with God? You know, God, if you'll just make this cancer on my nose not that bad, then I'll be more obedient. Just don't let him take too much, and I'll be obedient. Don't let the cancer spread. Let me spend more time on this earth with my family, and I'll be good. Do I make deals with God? How long does it take me to go back to sin after a catastrophic loss temporarily focuses my attention on him? After my father dies, after my mother dies, after other things happen, how long does it take me to go back to sin? But let's get back to blaming someone else. Because <clears throat> that's more comfortable. <clears throat> let's look at the people of Israel. What did they see? 
they saw themselves delivered from hundreds of years of slavery against all odds. They didn't rise up in rebellion. They didn't, you know, grab somebody, a, a leader, and go and break open the armory and grab the weapons and overthrow. <clears throat> they were miraculously delivered by God. They saw all these other things too, all these miraculous events that led to their freedom. <clears throat> then they saw a pillar of fire at night guiding them and a pillar of smoke in the daytime guiding them, leading them forward. In Exodus 14, they saw the Red Sea parted. Now, I saw it on the Ten Commandments movie, and it was pretty impressive, even with 1950s technology. But I'm sure it didn't quite capture the event. They saw the parting of the Red Sea, and no, it wasn't one of these things where they found some low part, you know, in the Reed Sea, and the wind blew at a certain pace and, and caused it so that they could sort of slosh through. The Bible says they walked through on dry land with huge towers of water on either side. That's in Exodus 14. You know what else is in Exodus 14? Same chapter, not long after. Fear and grumbling. Fear and grumbling. Parting of the Red Sea, fear and grumbling, chapter 14. The end of chapter 14. The last verse, it says, And when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord. And then you know what chapter 15 is about? Grumbling. 1524, so the people grumbled at Moses. You know what chapter 16 is about? Grumbling. Chapter 16, verses 2 and 3, the whole congregation grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. We had it so great in, it, in Egypt when we were slaves. Why didn't you leave us alone? Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. So what happens in, in, right after this in Exodus 16? God provides what? Manna. Food from heaven. You know what happens right afterwards? It's in Numbers 11, but chronologically, it happens right afterwards. They complain about the manna. God sends food from heaven miraculously, and they get tired of it and complain because they're eating the same thing every day. 
Now, I can't relate to this one at all. I got to say I'm separate from everyone in this because I can eat the same thing every day. If there's something I like, I can eat it every day. I think every day of my 10 years of high school teaching, I ate a tuna sandwich at lunch. My wife loved it because she never had to worry, just making a tuna sandwich, she's fine. Um, or I could eat a Del Beef burrito every day the rest of my life, and you might as well get used to it because that's lunch in heaven. <laughs> but they didn't like manna from heaven. They got tired of it. They grumbled. Well, I'm ahead of them on that one. Well, maybe. Maybe not. Maybe I share more with them than I want to think. I've seen God's deliverance in my life. You know, when I was in high school, I was going to a New Year's Eve party, Christian New Year's Eve party, no drinking, etc., but going to a, a New Year's Eve party. Uh, I lived in the Midwest, and it was we had had a massive snowstorm and ice storm, and so the roads were completely covered in ice. And I'm on the way to this party at like 1 o'clock in the morning or something, and I'm driving along, and I look off to the side, and I see this car barreling down the road, and it looked like a toboggan in, 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 uh, in the chute, you know, in the Olympics, because it's just kind of waving back and forth and kind of bouncing up against the snow drifts on either side of the road, and it, whoever it was was going, you know, really fast. And I did a quick calculation in my head, and I figured I'm going to get hit by this person because I'm going here, he's going here, and there's no way I can stop. It's just not going to happen. And so I'm going I'm to get drilled. I kept my calm somewhat and applied the, the, the rules that my father had taught me about stopping on ice without losing control of your vehicle, and so I did what needed to be done, and I stopped just short as... <laughs> The guy flew by right in front of me. And I immediately thought, God just saved my life. There's no other explanation. My wife and I were traveling up here to Santa Clarita. We lived in Burbank at the time. We were traveling up here to Santa Clarita, and our car ran out of gas. It was about 10 o'clock at night, torrential downpour. You all know the truckers drive at night because they don't like traffic, right? So there's all these trucks, these semi-trucks, barreling up the freeway, torrential downpour, and it's down by Roxford there where there's like six lanes, and we're in like the fifth lane over. And, uh, and the car just stops. And I look in my rearview mirror, and there's a car flying up behind us. I, I see headlights come up, and I just turn to my wife, and I said, we're going to get hit. But we didn't. The guy somehow behind us got stopped. And then the guy got out of his car and came up and helped me, and we pushed the car across four lanes of traffic in a torrential downpour with all these semi-trucks flying by, and we were okay. Do I believe that that was God's deliverance? Absolutely. So I've seen God's deliverance in my life, and there's countless other times because I was really an idiot when I was younger and did all sorts of stupid stuff. These are just the ones I'm willing to tell you. <laughs> so I've seen God's deliverance in my life, and yet I fear. 
I've seen God's provision in my life. And when you teach at a Christian school, you do not approach the status of millionaire. And when I was teaching at a Christian high school, making $12,000 a year, uh, I couldn't buy a house. Just wasn't going to happen. But eventually, after saving for a number of years and whatnot, and, and because actually of something that Dr. MacArthur did, which I very much appreciated, uh, his own sacrifice, uh, my wife and I were able to uh, buy a place in Pacoima, the murder capital of California. And our plan was what people do in, in California, right, which is you, you buy a place and you live there a couple of years and build up some equity and then you move to where you really want to live. But we bought right before the real estate crash. So we were there for 11 years. And then, actually I just misspoke, it was Dr. MacArthur's action that allowed the next step to happen, which was we were able to buy a home in the promised land, Santa Clarita. <laughs> and this was real deliverance from Pacoima to Castaic. So I've seen God's provision in my life, and yet I grumble on a daily basis. I grumble. I'm not satisfied. I'm not content. It's not enough. God has given me great undeserved blessings, one of which is sitting here in the chapel today and just introduced me. Three beautiful daughters. The births of my three daughters were the most amazing events of my life. And then I saw all three of my daughters baptized. Tremendous blessings. And yet I complain. I complain all the time. I'm no better than the people of Israel. Another thing about the people of Israel, let's get back to them. They met God. If you don't believe me, look at Exodus 19, 17. They met God and, and heard his voice at the foot of Mount Sinai. That's in Exodus 19. Then you know what's a couple of, a few chapters later? At the foot of Mount Sinai, the same place, they built the golden calf. Well, I've never done that. Oh, yeah? I first met God when I was 10 years old. And I've met him and heard his voice numerous times since. And I don't mean in a charismatic sense. I mean in the sense that God speaks to us through his word. And yet, 
I have idols and gross sin in my life. What about you? How often have you met God and heard his voice? Do you have idols and sin in your life? Uh, That's uncomfortable. Let's move on. Nadab and Abihu, Exodus 24, 9 and 10, they saw God. They saw God. Exodus 24. Shortly after that, they were killed by God. Why? You all know because we had this big conference a couple of years ago. They offered strange fire, right? They saw God. They were trained priests. They knew that God cared about how he's worshipped. That's what the book of Leviticus is all about. Why is the book of Leviticus even there? To show us that God cares about how he's worshipped. It's not up to us to just sort of make up whatever seems comfortable to us. I think I'll worship God this way. God demands to be worshipped in the way that he wants. And they didn't. They worshipped him a different way. It was all about improper worship on their part. Well, what about me? I haven't seen God, but I've seen him at work. I've seen his handiwork in the world and in the lives of people. But I don't always worship properly. I don't always bring him the kind of worship that he demands and deserves. Do I come to worship in an attitude of prayer? Do I come to worship in an attitude of submission to the word of God? Do I pay attention to what I'm singing? Or do I just read the words and follow along? Do I pay attention to what I'm singing? Do I come to the Lord's table properly? Do I do proper self-evaluation before I take communion? And if so, how many hours, not days, not weeks, how many hours will it be before I sin again? What about the heroes, Aaron and Moses? Aaron did some of the miracles and witnessed all the others, and then he made the golden calf. And 
tried to usurp authority from Moses. You can read about that in Numbers 12. Moses spoke with God. He spoke with God. He did most of the miracles and wrote five books of the Bible. But he sinned and was consequently not allowed into the land. What was his sin? Well, I don't know, man. It was like pretty unfair because he like just pretty much, you know, struck the rock, man. You should at least get like partial credit. His sin was pride. He was disobedient. God said, speak to the rock, and Moses hit the rock. But the issue was pride because of the reason that Moses struck the rock and what Moses said when he struck the rock. You can look it up. Numbers 20, verse 10. He said, Shall we bring forth water? That's what he said to the people. Shall we bring forth water from this rock? And then he struck the rock. He did something demonstrative to show that he was doing it. Same reason, by the way, that Jesus, when he healed the blind man, picked up some mud and, and made some mud and then rubbed it in the guy's eyes to show that he was doing it, that it wasn't just happening. Well, Moses, in a bad way, does the same thing. He strikes the rock to show everybody, look, hey, hey, shall we bring, okay, I will. Boom, here you go. Abracadabra. suggesting that it was his work and not God's to provide water for the people. His sin was pride. What about me? I can be weak-willed. You know, I, Aaron's issue was he was weak-willed. He was weak-willed. The people demanded, the people pressured him to do the golden calf, and so he caved into pressure. And I love what he says, right? I took the gold and I threw it in the pot and this calf came out. But why did he do it to begin with? Because the people pressured him and he was weak-willed. When he tries to usurp authority from Moses, why does he do it? Because Miriam pressured him. And he caved into Miriam. Aaron was weak-willed. I can be weak-willed. I'm prone to follow others into sin. And when I don't follow others into sin, it's often to show that I'm too good for that. I'm not going to sin with those people because I'm better than that. Not because I don't want to offend my Savior. Because I want to show that oh, I wouldn't do that. 
Like Moses, pride is my ever-present besetting sin. Ever since I was a boy, Nebuchadnezzar witnessed the miraculous deliverance of three men from the fiery furnace. He throws three guys in a fiery furnace. And then they come out and they're not even singed. And their clothes don't even smell, the Bible says. His initial response is what? Daniel 3, 28 to 30, his initial response is to give glory to God. There is no other God that could do this. These guys, God is the real God. But then you know what Daniel 4, 29 says? Nebuchadnezzar reflected. He reflected. And he decided, you know what? I'm really pretty good. I'm really pretty great, I'm pretty, I'm cool, I'm great, I'm pretty awesome. And he turned from saying that God is great to saying, I, Nebuchadnezzar, am great. And so what happened? God humbled him, turned him into a beast for seven years, and he ate grass. And he eventually came around. What about me? I often respond to God emotionally, like Nebuchadnezzar did. I respond with tingles or warm fuzzies or even tears. When Jubilant Sykes sings one of the great spirituals, I'll, I'll cry every time. When some preacher makes a tremendous point that really drives something home, I'll get warm fuzzies, I'll get tingles. When I see God's work in people's lives, I'll respond emotionally. But in time, I reflect and I revert to my innate desire to lift myself up or to do what I want to do. So God has to continually humble me and remind me of a proper view of myself. What about in the New Testament, the Gerizims? They saw a demon-possessed man who had a legion of demons. By the way, a Roman legion had 5,000 people in it. A demon-possessed man with a legion of demons. He was delivered. The demons were transferred to some pigs, and they ran off the cliff. And what was the response? The Bible says in Matthew 8:34, the response of the whole city was to ask Jesus to leave their region. That's a normal reaction, right? You see this tremendous miracle, this guy, hey, would you get out of here? What? What's going on? Well, unfortunately, it's not just the Gerizims 
but it's me too. What do I mean? I want the benefits, the goodies, from a relationship with Christ, but I often do not want him to invade my space. I want him out of my region. I don't want him to dwell with me or to abide with me because he might make some demands of me. Plus, I'm uncomfortable because I keep reverting to sin. And a sinful person next to a holy God is not comfortable. So I, in effect, I don't, I don't think this, I don't say it in my own mind, but in effect I say to, to Jesus, leave my region. Get out of my space. Jesus' disciples. They witnessed the feeding of the 5,000. They even distributed the food. And then what happens? The Bible says immediately afterwards, immediately afterwards, they were astonished that he had power over the wind, quote, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves. And the incident of the loaves? He created food on the spot for 5,000, more than 5,000 people. They had not gained any insight. They hadn't learned anything from his creative power. What about me? Seems that no matter how many times I see God's handiwork and intervention, I'm always surprised and astonished. Too often I don't think, wow, look what God did. I, too often it's, wow, God could do that? Then there's the classic Judas, who walked with Jesus, saw most of the miracles, participated in some of them. Remember, they didn't know who the, who the betrayer was. They said, is it me? Is it me? Judas had done all the same things they had done. They couldn't tell he was different. His response was betrayal for money and then extreme guilt. What about me? I sometimes back away from Christ when I'm not getting what I want from the relationship. I feel extreme guilt, but it doesn't last. What does this mean? Out of time. What does this mean for master's college students and for me? Beware spiritual pride. Beware spiritual pride. Couldn't be a problem at TMC. First Corinthians ten twelve says, "Beware if you think that you stand, lest you fall." I. I think I stand a lot. In fact, I was going to stand and rip on these people. That was the original thought of the message, right? Moses didn't say, show these people thy ways. These dolts have seen great evidence of thee, but re rejected thee, but I'm cool. 
Moses said, let me know by ways that I may know thee, so I may find favor and grace in thy sight. Beware of spiritual amnesia. That is, forgetting. Have a great experience. And then, oops, what was that? 1 Corinthians 10, 11, the previous verse says, these things happened to them, the Israelites, as an example. They were written for our instruction. When I see these stories and these examples, I'm supposed to learn something. And thirdly, ask God for increasing faith. People see the same things as others, and some respond and others don't. Why? Because of faith. It's not an intellectual thing. It's faith. Jesus said, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. Now, I've got to quit. Here's the deal. Why am I doing this? Because I, I don't know about you, but I don't want to show up on somebody else's PowerPoint. I don't want to be a target on somebody else's PowerPoint and saying, oh, you remember that Fraser guy? He was a mess. He saw and knew all this stuff, and yet he was sinful. What I want you to think about is Philippians 3. It's not enough to know the right things, you know, and have the right you know, TMC or church credentials. That's what Paul lays out in, in the beginning of Philippians 3. You know, Paul says in Philippians 3, <clears throat> I was raised in a Christian home, and I accepted Christ as a youngster, and I went to Christian high school, and then I went to the master's college, and I took 24 units of Bible, and I went to chapel three days a week, and I went to Bible studies. That's essentially what he says in Philippians 3, 4, and 5. And then at the end of it, Philippians 3, 9 and 10, he says this. After saying all those things are rubbish, he says, <clears throat> that I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Not that I may know more stuff to impress people, that I might, may pass all of my 24 units of Bible exams, not that I can lead a small group, but that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Beware spiritual pride. Sometimes knowing a lot is a bad thing. Something you never 
thought you'd hear a professor say. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that these things were written for our benefit so that we can learn. We pray, Father, that you would help us learn, that you would give us faith, that you would grant us faith. We know that we don't generate faith, but you grant faith. And we ask, Father, that you give us the faith, that you would humble us, that you would help us to want to know your sufferings, the power of your resurrection for your sake and not for ours.